Everyone bring your umbrellas. It's raining squids. Welcome back to the Watchmen podcast where we recap and review each episode of the new HBO series, The Watchmen. Today's episode, An Almost Religious Awe. Written by Stacey Osei-Kofer and Claire Keischel and directed by David Semmel. Those are all interesting names. They are. Well, David Semmel is, uh, the first half, not very interesting. Second half, kind of interesting. David Simmel, actually, he's, he's been around forever. By the way, I'm Ryan. That was James, and I'm Ryan. <laughs> and right. uh, David Simmel, he directed the pilot of Heroes. And I don't know if you recall back in 2006, but Heroes was a thing. Yeah, I've seen the pilot of Heroes, but not much else. The first season has a cult following. Then the writer's strike happened, ruined a lot of it. And it all kind of went downhill for there, but not for David Simmel, who has also worked on a multitude of projects like Madam Secretary, Buffy the Vampire Slayer going way back, Dawson's Creek, American Horror Story, Man in the High Castle, House. There's a bunch more that he's done. Written by Stacey Osei-Kofer and Claire Keischel. Claire Keischel, a writer on The OA, and Stacey Osei-Kofer, a writer on Pen15. But not a lot of writing credits to either of their names. So coming into an almost religious awe, a episode of this television show that is a huge turning point. We get confirmation on the theory, I would say, that's the largest in the entire show. And they execute it brilliantly. Let's do this. Let's get into the show. This was a good one. So the title in almost religious awe comes from the chapter of the comic book where we get Dr. Manhattan's like whole backstory and he's kind of jumping around in his timeline, which is actually portrayed very well in the Zack Snyder film. But not so much in this episode of television? No, this one was good. I'm just saying that's where it comes from. It's uh, Dr. Manhattan's remembering what they were saying about how the Viet Cong soldiers viewed him and that, that this line comes up. There was a great shot in this that showed a gigantic Dr. Manhattan moving through a countryside, just exploding things. And you have to assume if you're looking up at that, you're like, oh, this war is over. They have that giant blue power man. This war is done now. We open up on a documentary of Dr. Manhattan, which is being run inside of an old-fashioned tape store in post-war American state, what, 80s Vietnam? So John Osterman, the immigrant son of a poor clockmaker, they're going through the backstory in this Ken Burns-esque documentary, which I love Ken Burns' documentary, so I felt right at home, felt very comfortable. So this is 80s Vietnam, and there's a festival going on celebrating Victory Day, like the day that Vietnam surrendered to the United States. So there's all this Dr. Manhattan imagery happening all over the place, and there's a Dr. Manhattan puppet show that little girl Angela is watching, and she leaves the video store having rented... Lady Knight, which is the kind of looks like a black exploitation action hero that she has based her future persona after. The man working at the video store sees her doing so, tells her that her parents aren't going to let her watch it. So this is something that she has tried before. She heads back on over. Living in America, the song is playing in the background. As you said, there is a marionette of Dr. Manhattan. There are people on bikes all around them. Little Angela goes up to her father and mother, 
Her father is a soldier and shows them the tape and they don't want her watching it at all. Her father says people who wear masks are dangerous, which makes sense because as a child, he was, you know, pretty much turned off to people in masks as he had white paint ripped off his face by his father before he moved back to Tulsa with his mother. Angela goes to return the tape. She watches a bit more of the puppet show. She sees the puppeteer handing a backpack to a very nervous-looking young man who then bikes over to where a bunch of American GIs are hanging out and suicide bombs himself, killing Angela's parents. So, if we're all keeping track of parents who have exploded in this show, William's parents, Angela's grandfather, his parents, exploded. Angela's parents also exploded. What is with this family line and their parents exploding? That jolts Angela out of bed where she's again in the compound with Lady True, who explains to her that she's undergoing treatment, that this facility was probably the only place that could have saved her life. She's attached to a live donor who they're filtering out Will's memories into and filtering in new, I think it was uh, brain cells from her brain stem in order to un unblock her neural pathways, which have been filled with Will's memories. Right. Complicated, which is the point Lady True was trying to tell her for the sixth time, perhaps, as Angela has gone through these exact motions prior, but doesn't remember them, so Lady True is letting her know this is something we've done over and over again. This exact conversation has happened many times. You've fallen out of the bed a bunch. Lori Blake brought you here because she knew I was probably going to be one of the only people on Earth who could save you right now. And as you said, she still has that giant orange line coming out of her, going out of the room. And Angela would like to know whom she is being attached to. Her mind and her memories are all still jumbled up with Will's, and so she's having flashbacks of his life and flashbacks of her own life. Lady True wants to ask her which memory it was that brought her out of that coma, and Angela stonewalls her. She's like, yeah, it's my birthday party where my parents bought me a pony. Not the truth, obviously. As the audience has previously seen the truth, we get a aerial shot of the Millennium Clock a clock that is supposed to turn on very, very soon. And outside of the Millennium Clock, Cal pulls up Angela's husband to go see his wife. But Red Scare and Pirate Jenny are sitting there and saying that he cannot go in. And all of this is occurring while Lady True's daughter, Bien, is sitting down or about to sit down with Angela after saying hi to Cal in hologram form. Yeah, and I wonder if this is even BN or if this is just some sophisticated AI telling him he can't come in. Yeah, she is the security guard, the tiny holographic security guard at the front who does a great job. Cal doesn't get in. This hologram successfully stops him. Lori's in a cop car listening to recordings that she made of Angela when she was in her coma, basically acting out all the different memories we just saw her have last episode. When Judd's wife Judy rides up on a horse, surprised to see her, and invites her up to her country ranch home, and 
Lori basically spills everything to her. Yeah, so your husband was killed by Hooded Justice with a mind control device. Pretty weird. Right before the horsey comes up to Blake in the car and she goes on inside, Detective Petey gives her a call. Petey is in Looking Glass's house. Uh, Timothy Blake Nelson's Looking Glass is not in there. He's not dead on the floor like all the 7th Cavalry is. We were very worried as he was definitely outnumbered. All the 7th Cavalry on the floor. Petey says he can't find Looking Glass anywhere. And one of the 7th Cavalry doesn't have a mask anymore. Which might infer that Looking Glass has taken it. And now is under the guise of a 7th Cavalry member. As Blake walks into what turns out to be a trap. Who saw this one coming? I did not. I didn't. Should it, I should we have seen this one coming? I don't know. As she, yeah, as she's theorizing to to Jane about her theories of why Hooded Justice would kill her husband and what it might have to do with the KKK that he was fighting in New York City, Jane's just not going to bother uh putting up any kind of front and is like, "Yeah, you know, you're right. Uh this has been a big criminal conspiracy, but you're never going to stop us because I've got this remote control which she Bangs a few times, kind of like the Joker in the Dark Knight. She can't get it to go off. And then, you know, the couch sinks a little bit. And Laurie's like, the fuck are you trying to do? And then it just falls into a trapdoor. Very funny moment. A trapdoor not working the way it's supposed to. Very Mr. Burns. Yes, exactly. Mr. Burns like, oh, come on. Work. Make Homer Simpson fall out of a chute somewhere. Laurie goes through the floor and... Jane picks up her phone and calls someone and said, Hey, Lori Blake just stopped by. Should I kill her or what? Back in the recovery room, Bianne is kind of psychoanalyzing Angela. Angela thinks this is part of the treatment. Bianne's like, no, I'm just doing a PhD on behavioral psychology. So I'm just gathering data. She asks Angela if it's hard lying to her son about her job. Like, this is not an easy interview. Bianne's really digging deep with no empathy to be found on her face, in her words, or emotions. And Angela flashbacks, seeing Bass Reeves flashing to William and Judd, where the the tree occurred and Judd got hung. And then flashbacks to Vietnam. Her memory is still very layered with William's and her own and the present day. She also goes to what looks like a warehouse where... She's making tiny little Manhattan dolls. And as you said, in the present, the end is not even being helpful. She's just kind of like writing a paper and is found the perfect test subject for her psychological tests. Right. Her last question is, if, you, if you're if you afraid for your kid's safety, why would you be a cop anyway? Which triggers a flashback of Angela in an orphanage in Saigon painting... These toys, I guess, they have a little job or whatever. Kind of a sad, pretty sad scene. And she's called out of that by two Vietnamese police officers who want her to ID the perpetrator of the suicide bombing, the guy who passed off the backpack. And they do. And one cop takes him away for a summary execution, which Angela requests to be able to stay and listen to, which I guess impresses the lady police officer who hands her a badge. Perhaps this is the moment where Angela finds her calling, figures out she wants to be a cop when she grows up, 
But yeah, the guy who was absolutely the marionette dude taken away to be shot in the head and the officer being like, okay, Angela, tiny Angela child, perhaps go back inside. And Angela's like, oh, no, man, can I listen? I want to listen. We're kind of getting a picture here of why Angela is so hard and like basically so maybe emotionless in the face of all these horrible things because she had a pretty uh, bad upbringing, you know, with uh, a lot of fucked up shit happening. Awful things happen to both her and her grandfather, and it's all going to affect the present day when when it all comes to a head. We go back to the future, and Bien is in front of her and asks, whose memory did you just experience, yours or your grandfather's? To which Angela says, it was hers, her own, and she's like, oh great, that's progress. Bien confesses that she also has memories of someone else, an elderly woman back in Vietnam. Now we go to another Adrian Veidt sequence. Adrian is on trial. This is the 365th day of his year-long trial. Another year has passed. Every time we see Adrian Veidt, one year has passed and another year gone. The transition to this scene was in the next week on for Watchmen as well, where Angela's eyes turn into the glass that is on top of this room. Actually breathtaking and... Like you said, Adrian Veidt on trial in his Ozymandias costume. Adrian just looks completely dead inside. Like, yeah, we've been having this year-long trial. I'm being judged not even by fully-fledged humans, but by bizarre homunculi. The prosecutor, Crookshanks, makes a pretty good case against him, not just for what he's done to the clones, but the terrible things that he did on Earth, which I guess he was bragging about while he was here. And... Instead of making a case in his own defense, Adrian just stands up and farts. Right, 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 right. So, this is the second piece of entertainment I have seen this week, where a very serious moment is occurring, and then the main character in said scene just farts. <laughs> I saw Ford versus Ferrari, and Christian Bale was having one of those Oscar Beatty scenes. And then at the end of the Oscar Beatty scene, he has his son pull his finger and he straight farts in the middle of the movie, inexplicably. And then I move one day further and see Watchmen and Ozzy apparently thinks very little of this trial because as he is trying to defend himself as he has no lawyer, he stands up and lets everyone know what he thinks about it. And he just lets out some fat flatulence. What is that? Did you like that? Did you like it? <laughs> I mean, this was wacky. They also said that he hasn't stood up and said anything for the entire year-long trial. He's just been letting them do whatever. So, I don't know. I think he's just done with this and with them. So he's just showing his contempt. When I first saw it, I was like, so you have Jeremy Irons. And his one thing he did in this scene was cut a fart. And then say, the defense rests, and that's his one line. Bravo! Bravo! Another! Another fart for me, Jeremy Irons! You're a man amongst men. The game warden, I guess, is what he's trying to get one back at him for this farting routine, and says that the other clones are too good to have to judge him, so he's brought in a pack of squealing pigs who are more on Adrian's level and so better suited to judge him, and the pig squeals at the game warden, and the game warden declares him guilty. The room then chants the word guilty at Ozymandias, 
And he seems to care very little. Again, 10 seconds prior to this, before the pigs entered the room, he farted. The man doesn't care. Right. And we don't even know necessarily what they're going to sentence him to. For all they know, they're going to sentence him to be like a Mr. Phillips or something. So while we're here, I guess we can, we'll, we'll discover more later that informs this. But who do we now believe? Do we just believe Lady True is the one keeping him on Jupiter's moon? Probably Europa. I, I don't know. I, I thought maybe it's got something to do with Dr. Manhattan. And I think Lady True is going to organize his rescue. Right. Who, does, who needs Adrian Veidt's help right now, if anybody? Well, I think we let's let's get there. End of the episode. How dare you? Let's keep going. Back in the primary storyline, Angela's having dinner with Lady True, and she confesses that Bianne is a clone of her mother, and that she's been using the nostalgia tech to reintegrate her mother's memories into this clone to resurrect her mom. I think rightly so. Angela's like, that's insane. You're a crazy monster. And Lady True's comeback is that she's about to activate the Millennium Clock, which is going to be the most important day of her life, and she wants to have her parents there. Angela, a little bit confused, asks, like, well, what about your dad? And Lady True says he'll be here, too. So there's this one theory that Lady True's dad is the comedian. I don't know any other theories on as to who might that be, but they're all going to be there to see Lady True's plan come to fruition. And while Angela says that she's a monster and Lady True's like, yeah, sure, whatever, man, monster this, monster that, I'm making my parents again. They're both coming back. They're going to see me succeed. Lori wakes up tied to a chair, meets with Senator Joe Keene, and Keene basically outlines, she doesn't want to hear this. She's like, fuck, this is so cliche. Just leave me alone. But he he outlines his master plan is not to use Dr. Manhattan or technology or whatever in order to become the president of the United States, but he's going to become Dr. Manhattan himself. So he's basically, he's going to make America great again and become Dr. Manhattan. I thought this scene was a little bit on the nose. Like when Joe Keen leans in and is like, it's very hard to be a white man in today's America. Like, yeah, that was a funny line. And that's probably what a lot of dumb racists believe. But it was just a little bit on the nose for the bad guy to say that line, I think. But, I mean, if if they're going for him to be kind of a funny bad guy, then I guess that was good. But I just, I don't think, you know, he would come out and say it like that. Especially because he had just been saying like, oh, you know, no, the Cyclops and the 7th Cavalry are not bad guys. We're actually the good guys. Like, I'm sure that's probably what he thinks. I don't know. I just, I, I thought that was kind of silly. But, I mean, white supremacy is silly, so who knows. The best bad guys always think they are the good guys. So I think that part is fine. But I also think the writers of this episode, and also Damon Lindelof, the creator of the entire series, very much understood that this scene was on the nose. Because they have Laurie Blake the entire time Senator Keene is just, you know, laying out his evil plan being like, I don't want to... Lori Blake was the audience in this moment. While Senator Keene is like, why be Robert Redford when I could be Superman? And Lori Blake the entire time is saying like, who has a fucking trap door in their living room? Y'all suck. This plan sucks. You suck. Hey, everybody listen to me right now. Y'all suck. And I don't know if that was like 
meta commentary on the two on the nose scene, but it seemed like it to me because I, like you, was like, this is a lot of information being told to us, like right to us, like punching us straight in the face while Lori Blake is telling what I believe the audience felt in that moment, which is, this is a lot. Shut up. Angela is following her drip feed, and it brings her not to Will, but to a sleeping elephant, which was very shocking at first viewing. I don't really understand what the elephant can cure nostalgia because elephants never forget. Well, while we're talking about the elephant in the room, and that's a cold zinger, I will also say that Lady True's logo for her pharma company is an elephant. So this seems just like... A thing that Lady True and the people who work for her do. They filter memories out through elephants. They don't exactly explain why that's helpful or why it works. But when Angela breaks into a room, she believed her grandfather slash William would be in there. And in fact saw a elephant in a coma. It was surprising. I'll give you that. She rips out the IV from her arm, which causes her to flash back once again. In what I think was the best and probably the saddest scene of the episode. She's pulled out from the orphanage once again. This time to meet her grandmother, June. Who had been writing to the military for a while. Trying to get in contact with her son. Only to find out uh, a lot of things that he's dead. He was married. And he had a daughter. Which June didn't know any of. Because she had been estranged from her son. Because she disagreed with his decision to go fight in Vietnam. Angela tells June that she wants to be a police officer. And June says, you know, of course you are. Of course you want to be that. Angela shows June Sister Night the tape, says she's not allowed to watch it. And that her father said that she should be afraid of people in masks. And June explains why that makes a whole lot of sense. June changes the subject when Angela asks if she has a grandfather And then that subject that she brings up is, hey, by the way, I'm going to bring you back to Tulsa. So let's go into this taxi cab. I'm sure nothing bad will happen between me closing the door for you in the taxi cab and me getting into it. And it's just so sad because, you know, she falls over dead from a heart attack, which might be, you know, she mentioned before that she had a little bit of a heart attack, which might mean that she had some kind of arrhythmia, which can be very dangerous uh, at an advanced age. And they had a connection and... Her grandmother didn't force her to self-censor or anything. She was just dropping F-bombs and saying, yeah, we're going to watch Lady Night as soon as we get back to Tulsa. And just drops dead. And Angela just, like, watching all this has no emotion. It almost reminded me a little bit of, sorry to always bring this up, Game of Thrones, when at a certain point, Arya just, like, stopped being a kid and stopped reacting to things in emotional ways because, like, The hits just keep coming, and at a certain point, you're burned out. So when June falls over, it's supposed to be, and as you said, your experience of it was it's supposed to be sad, but my initial reaction was laughter. I just laughed, because as June hits the ground, you know immediately that she's dead, It is a bummer to see a character, the character of June, whom we got to know very well last episode. She was back and she was going to be a part of it. And she was going to be a part of Angela's life for more than 30 minutes. And as she hit the ground, my exact initial reaction 
was just laughter. I felt really bad, but at the same time, I was like, oh, God. What, what else do you have to do to this kid to make her the person that she is today, waking back up next to an elephant and going, what is my life? Right, but now, you know, she was not sad as a child when June died because she hardly knew her. But this time when she flashes back and watches her die, she also flashes back to all of these precious memories that Will had with her. And it kind of recontextualizes her relationship to her grandmother and, you know, the life her grandmother lived that she previously didn't know anything about. Right. Why be sad about a person you just met a half hour ago, even if they are your kin? Except now, with William's memories, she felt closer to June all of a sudden and is, in retrospect, sad about what happened. And also, with the audience follows that same path, like I did too. I was then sad right after I immediately laughed at this child's misfortune. Angela wakes up on the floor next to the elephant and continues to search Lady True's compound. She comes to a dark room with a glowing globe in the center and a screen where the calls the people play to Dr. Manhattan are on a screen. Lady True appears and claims that the Dr. Manhattan booths, which she has all over the world, are pointless. Dr. Manhattan is not listening. He's not even on Mars. He is hiding as a human somewhere in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In this moment, Angela is very surprised by this fact and... We also learn right now that Lady True knows more than we thought she did, which perhaps shouldn't be a surprise, right? As Adrian Veidt, the smartest man in the world, is not there to be smart or relevant, Lady True has perhaps taken over the mantle of being the smartest woman, smartest person, period, on Earth. So underestimating the amount of knowledge she had on this situation was probably folly because she knows all of the things. She knows everything that's about to happen and she has a plan to try to stop it very specifically and knows that Dr. Manhattan is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. And Will apparently knew all this prior to the events of the show and was the one who clued Lady Truen. So somehow he has a wealth of information on Angela and her whole life. And it also makes me want to know how much did Judd know of any of this prior to him being mesmerized and hanging himself. Angela dismisses all this as a dumb conspiracy theory and turns to leave. And as she's walking out, Lady True wonders aloud, like, why why aren't you asking who Dr. Manhattan is? I just told you he's in Tulsa. Don't you want to know who it is? And Angela leaves without a word. So does Lady True know that Angela knows and just making fun of her to her face? Or does she actually not know the lady true, true version of who Dr. Manhattan is? Does she know that he's in Tulsa but doesn't know the exact person? I feel like she knows and she's just mocking Angela, right? Right. She's signaling to her like, I know you know. Let's stop dancing around the topic. And Angela's like, I'm gonna keep dancing till I die. Bye. Angela escapes the compound by crashing her car through Red Scares, who had set it up to block her. Jenny tries to tell her that she's under arrest, and Angela's like, no, nah, I'm going. Bye. No, th- no thank you. I believe you believe I'm under arrest, but I also believe, no thank you, goodbye. She goes home. She finds Cal reading uh, the aptly titled, For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, It Tolls for Thee, Cal. 
And she explains that, yeah, sorry, uh, our time is up. We have to go back to our contingency plan, the one where I kill you and bring back to life Dr. Manhattan. So Cal is Dr. Manhattan. The internet is right once more. Probably the the biggest reveal up until now. Perhaps there will be bigger ones in the future. Ones that the internet knew more or less about. But as the Cal equals Dr. Manhattan idea was sweeping Reddit and podcasts and think pieces, many didn't believe that it was the case. But I've, we were on it about four episodes ago because the internet made a very good argument for it. So we jumped right on the Cal equals Dr. Manhattan. I'm very glad that he is. I loved this scene because Angela is talking to Cal, but he is she's not referring to him as Cal anymore. She's now referring to him as John, and he still doesn't get it, it seems. His human veneer doesn't understand fully that he's Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan has both hidden it from the human being that Cal is and the outside world, but Angela knows all of this. She knows that Cal is Dr. Manhattan. She knows the way to make Cal back into Dr. Manhattan. And the way to do that is, you know, smashing his face in with a hammer. So let's get into some of these wacky theories. I think probably Dr. Manhattan goes back to Vietnam, lies to Adrian about what he plans to do, goes back to Vietnam probably to make amends because he feels bad about the horrible things he did there. Oh, the genocide? Both Adrian Veidt and Dr. Manhattan committing genocides on two different fronts. And he goes to Adrian Veidt and is like, oh my god, how do you not feel bad about the genocide you committed? And Ozymandias is like, yeah, I don't know. I guess you have, you, the blue, all-seeing, all-knowing god-being has more empathy than me. That's crazy. Right, and he bumps into Angela there, and we see in the next episode preview that because he experiences life fourth-dimensionally, the moment he meets Angela, he understands they're going to have this long relationship together. So he's like, oh, by the way, uh, you and I are in love, but not at this point in time, but we are in love somewhere. God, that must be an infuriating person to be with, right? Like, oh, uh, God, we need to get to the Grand Canyon someday. Well, about four years... 10 days and two seconds from now, will totes be there? Isn't that nuts? High five. So you had mentioned what I think is a false theory about the comedian being Lady True's dad. I think probably not literally, not literally her dad, but Adrian Veidt maybe is like her father figure or inspiration. Her mentor? Not even, not even mentor. It doesn't have to be direct inspiration. Maybe indirect. Maybe she just considers him like a father. The same way that Adrian thought that, you know, Alexander the Great was the only person he had a real connection to. And that's the person she's going to be bringing in time to watch the Millennium Clock turn on. She's either going to rescue him with a portal or, I don't know, she already rescued him with a spaceship months ago and it's on its way to Earth. That's true. The timelines being so different from the Adrian Veidt storyline where we don't truly know where he is, like what year any of it's happening as one year passes each time we see him. He could literally be inside a room inside the Millennium Clock already. He, when he gets jettisoned out by the trebuchet, he writes, save me D, and we don't see what the D stands for or goes off. 
people thought perhaps he was going to say, save me, Dr. Manhattan, as, uh, and if Dr. Manhattan and Adrian Veidt had a closer relationship towards the end of Vietnam, that could possibly be it. But I like that theory that Lady True will bring Adrian Veidt back to witness her version of fixing the world and perhaps try to prove to him that her version... Do you think she's going to also kill three million people? I I don't think she's going to. What do you think is going to go on with the 7th Cavalry here? Because in the next episode preview, Dr. Manhattan is saying like, yeah, you can't save me, but you are going to try. Thanks for that. So are they going to succeed? So what I assume it was about to happen was everyone knows that Cal is Dr. Manhattan somehow. And Senator Keene and the 7th Cavalry... We're going to kidnap Cal, Dr. Manhattan, in his weaker human form, and then somehow use him to and kill him so that no one can get in Senator Keene's way when Senator Keene becomes a Dr. Manhattan version slash superhero. But a part of me wants two Dr. Manhattans. You know what I mean? Like, it, it wants Senator Keene to transform in the way that he has figured out to do so. And Cal, who is no longer the human version of himself, because Angela called the bluffs of everyone around her by taking a hammer to Cal's head, John Osterman's head, Dr. Manhattan's face, as blue light pours out of it, and she grabs a copper or bronze Dr. Manhattan signia slash logo that from from his brain. So the Watchmen fan in, in me wants a Superman versus Superman scenario where Dr. Manhattan finally has a fight with someone who is comparable to his powers, perhaps a Dr. Keen. Yeah, I don't know if I see that happening. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't either. I just want it to happen. I don't. I, I don't necessarily think anyone can become Doctor Manhattan. I think what happened to to John and in the intrinsic field separator was like a one in a billion chance. Like certainly, you would think that all throughout the Cold War, the USSR would be taking people and throwing them in intrinsic field separators, trying to replicate that if it were possible. You know, it's also because he he was an expert of like biology. And an expert of, like, assembly that he was able to, like, you know, be intrinsically field-separated and then piece his body back together. So it just doesn't seem like something that, that you know, Joe Keen, who seems like a dumb guy, is going to be able to replicate. That, I don't know what their plan is. Are they, they going to put him in an intrinsic field-separator? Because Adrian already did that and it didn't work. Right. So here's what we know. Mesmerism is going to be used somehow. Lady True has bought TVs for the entirety of Tulsa. Lady True knows that the 7th Cavalry is trying to kidnap Cal in an effort to become superhumans themselves. She believes that her Millennium Clock and her plan is going to quote-unquote save humanity along with William, who owns the rights to American Hero Story, So with all the TVs that she has bought, all the people in Tulsa and American Hero Story most likely going to be used for mesmerism in some way, the people of Tulsa will be a character in this future epic, perhaps epic, battle in the last 
two episodes. And Senator Keene's trying to become Dr. Manhattan. And Dr. Manhattan is coming back. Probably. We don't know what version of Dr. Manhattan is about to come out of Cal. We don't know if he's just going to stand up and be like, Hi. Okay. Well, I'm back and I'm at full power. Let's do this. Oh, also, by the way, we know Adrian Veidt is on a moon on Jupiter. As you said, Lady True might see him as a father figure and is going to bring him back to witness whatever is about to occur. So my questions are, who is more evil, Senator Keene or Lady True? And will Dr. Manhattan come back at full power, at any power? What is Angela and Dr. Manhattan going to do? And also, I can't wait to see Cal as Dr. Manhattan. That seems like it's going to be incredibly entertaining. Yeah, I wonder about that because I heard him in the next episode and he sounds pretty good, but just in my mind, Billy Crudup is the voice of Dr. Manhattan. Which initially, when they announced that casting, I was like, what, the rock star guy from Almost Famous is Dr. Manhattan? That's stupid. But then he really killed it. He did. He was really great. But I think it stands to reason where if you're blue and you're glowing and you put on a cool, at least the coolest voice you have at your disposal, you could be a Dr. Manhattan with the right. More so, I'm not wondering what as much what the actor is going to do in the role. I, I hope he's awesome. I hope he lives up to Billy Crudup's representation of Dr. Manhattan. I want to know what Damon Lindelof is going to do with the character of Dr. Manhattan. Because it's... Every time you open a Superman comic, there's this part of you that thinks, I know what the end of this is already. Right? I know Superman is the strongest character in this universe. No one is going to beat him. At the end, he's going to be fine. And... Anyone who comes up against him will either be dead or in prison or something. It will be difficult for him at some point, but he's going to pull through. Which is why Dr. Manhattan exists in a world where people dress up in capes and masks. Because it's interesting to ask, hey, if I'm in a mask and I'm fighting crime but I don't have superpowers, what is that world like? A world full of Batmans and no Supermans. And then you enter in one Superman and the story becomes benign it becomes not as interesting because who cares about superheroes without superpowers if you have superman so i want to know what damon lindelof's idea of what dr manhattan is going to be in this version of the world and will it be uninteresting and the only way it can be interesting is if dr manhattan is not at full strength right right or they find some other workaround the way adrian did he used tachyons in order to prevent Dr. Manhattan from seeing the future. Right. Do you believe in the next episode, Dr. Manhattan is going to explode any white supremacist? Do you believe one white supremacist will explode due to Dr. Manhattan's finger or snapping of? That would be sweet. I don't know if that's going to happen, though. I don't know if Dr. Manhattan's really going to do too much other than just appear in the story. And what role will Looking Glass play? Most likely undercover, wearing a Rorschach mask, kind of allowed into freedom now that he doesn't believe with his very bones that a psychic squid was a actual alien. So Angela and Cal slash John Osterman, Dr. Manhattan, Lady True's magic plan and Senator Keene's plan, all these plans coming together with an undercover looking glass somewhere in the story. 
to be determined. James, also, did you see that the name of the fake phallus that Lori Blake had was Excalibur, and which literally meant Excalabar? Like, her ex was Calabar, Dr. Manhattan? Just, like, that's how some people put this together. Yeah, it makes me wonder if maybe Lindelof put a little too many hints in the show, especially if you watch... Something like Westworld, where it is actually really Byzantine and complicated, but people still put it together immediately anyway. Yeah, almost too easy. Also, uh, I was reading this thing on the internet where when Angela was at the DNA tree in an earlier episode, the voice said that her father was Marcus Abar, meaning that Cal took her last name. So people thought, well, perhaps now that we know Cal is Dr. Manhattan, he didn't have a last name of his own. But a entry on PDpedia this week lists his maiden name as Calvin Jelani. And then the first comment into that is like, Calvin Jelani. Kal-El. Kal-El? Are you serious? Ah, uh, yeah, that's funny. So uh, getting more into this, the, this is from Sunday Night's Hollywood Reporter interview with Damon Lindelof. I just want to read a few select pieces from it. But the ending's kind of important. They ask, what were your initial ideas about how to bring Dr. Manhattan into the fold for your series? And how did that lead to the Cal Abar character? Was this a turn you arrived at early in breaking the season, or did it come late in the process? Lindelof says, I started this whole journey from the perspective of a fan. What I would have to see in the television show, daring to call itself Watchmen, if Dr. Manhattan was near the top of that list. But even higher was that we needed to tell a story with a new character at the center of it. Once we landed on Angela Abar as that center... The new rule became that any legacy characters that we were using, Vite, Lori, Hooded Justice, could only be used in service of Angela's story. She was the sun everyone else needed to be orbiting around her. So how could Dr. Manhattan, a man with the power of God, be in service to Angela's story as opposed to the other way around? Based on his past and all the tropes of Greco-Roman mythology, the answer was intuitive, love. We knew this relationship could only work if Manhattan took the form of a human and so the idea of Cal was born, and yeah, it came early, almost from the jump. And by the way, the next episode is entitled A God Walks Into a Bar, so we're probably going to get the backstory of Angela slash Dr. Manhattan. Perhaps Cal walks into the bar to see Angela or the other way around, and we actually get to see their courtship, which should be interesting. We were just talking about this. In casting Cal, were you actively casting Dr. Manhattan as well? What qualities were you looking for? And what made you feel Yaya was the right fit? 100%. At the time, besides the writers, only Nicole Castle knew. We sort of hinted at it with Vicky Thomas, our brilliant casting director. Something along the lines of, he's not who we think he is, he's a bit off. Hmm. I first saw Yaya in an episode of Handmaid's Tale and I just knew. He came in for a chemistry read with Regina and she also just knew. Of course, we didn't tell either of them Cal's true identity until after he was cast. That's pretty interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. That he he got a job and then he went into the first meeting and they were like, so you're the strongest being in the universe. Is that cool with you? Cool. The last question of the interview, I think, has a big possible reveal in it. The question is, now that we have Dr. Manhattan joining Vite and Lori, is it too much to ask for a Dan Dryberg sighting before the end of the season? Dan Dryberg, of course, being Night Owl 2. Damon Lindelof answers... I regret to inform you, and you have my word on this, there will be no Dan in this season of Watchmen. What? 
Yes. Excuse me? Yeah. Excuse me, sir. What is that? that this has <laughs> been... He's been touting this as a miniseries. They've all said that the whole time. Miniseries. This season. Did he just slip up or make a mistake? Right. So to me, this opens up the possibility that we're getting Watchmen season two. I mean, I hope so. This this season has been so, so good. Obviously, the ending, the last two episodes, are going to color in how brilliant we will see it eventually, right? Every one of these large premiere television shows requires an ending that at least a large percentage of the audience finds satisfying. We saw that with Game of Thrones, with a large percentage of that fan base not finding it satisfying. I'll say, for my purposes, I did, but a lot of people didn't. And Watchmen will be exactly the same. If the last two episodes go down the hill, then we won't care that the journey there has been so great just as much. So... As we move on, we have to see how that goes. But I'm hopeful, as an instrumental version of Life on Mars brings us out of this episode and we have the idea that we're about to see Dr. Manhattan, which, of course, like Damon Lindelof just said, he's one of the most interesting characters in this entire story. The one character with actual superpowers is going to be an interesting character. Which I also like that Dr. Manhattan... He has the dichotomy of both being an interesting character because he's very powerful, but the writing of him, and I believe, and you can tell me if Alan Moore had this in mind, I'm going to make this the most boring Superman known to known to the, and this story or any story. Right, and he, he's not just like speaks in a monotone voice, but he doesn't have strong opinions on anything. His girlfriend, his first girlfriend asks him why he didn't prevent the assassination of JFK, and he's like, what do you mean prevented it? It already happened. All of time is happening simultaneously. What can I do? Anything. You can do anything. Right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I seem to be all powerful, but I also seem to be pretty apathetic towards almost everything. Uh, We have a few tweets to go through. Johnny K. Vu at Douchebag Johnny says, At James Watches Men, what happened to the guy who wanted to build Saturn and the Milky Way without gravity? Uh, I don't know, Johnny. I'm not 100% sure I know what you're talking about. But yeah, what? where's that guy? Oh, he's talking about Terrence Howard. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened to that guy. I just Googled it. We haven't had any news sources on him since September when he babbled into a microphone on a red carpet. And then it seems as though he has faded into the distance like the good guy at the end of a Western movie. Except in this case, he's not the good guy. He is the man who wants to, as you said, create Saturn in the Milky Way sans gravity. And then he was like, okay, someone else figure that out. I put it out into the ether. Now you figure it out. We got a tweet from the Violent Delights podcast. So glad the hashtag HBO boys are recapping Watchmen HBO. We wanted to do it too, but we just couldn't spare the bandwidth. We're in cold storage until Westworld comes back. Super excited for Westworld Season 3. Thank you very much, Violent Delights, for sending us that. That was very nice of you. Again, we are not the HBO companion podcast. We are not the official podcast for HBO, but we love this show and we're trying our best. I just needed to get both of those things 
out, to, out of the way just to understand we are we're th- this is our hobby and it's been so fun because this is a great show and I can't wait for Westworld to come back so I can listen to some Violent Delights as well. You guys are awesome. We are. We are the official podcast of your heart. Correct. Yes. Rich Guy McFat said, found the podcast today and like it. Only complaint is the opening music went on for too long on episode six. Okay, fair enough. That is fair. But I will say, the opening music goes on for the entire time, every time. But I have taken this into consideration and I have lowered the volume. You're welcome. Rich Guy McFats uh, went on to say, all in all, though, really enjoyed the breakdown and can't wait to follow along with you guys as the episodes drop. Thanks, at Rich Guy McFat. I hope also to one day be a rich, fat guy. Oh, my God. Me too. If I am a fat guy in the future, I, well, mm, you could argue whether or not I'm a fat guy now, but I want to be rich as well. Rich, fat guy, and then I want to take the Senator Keen route and be the all-seeing, all-knowing blue guy who floats and can make people explode. I'm an egomaniacal maniac. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you're just listening, it means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you can rate us on any of the podcast apps. You can follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. You can follow us on SoundCloud or... If you really want to go the extra mile, you could help underwrite the costs of this show like our lovely patrons do. Our patrons are Bacaman, Craig, John Jurors, Lee, and Major Woody. Thank you very much for giving us money. We, we really appreciate the money. Join us here next week at the same time for episode 8, the penultimate episode entitled A God Walks Into a Bar. Directed by Nicole Castle and written by Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof. Damon is back, baby. He's back with the penultimate episode. We're going to see what Damon has for us. Give me that good blood, Damon. Give me that spice spice. Give me that nice. I want all the good things. Don't make this bad. Yeah, maybe we should say season one, episode eight. Oh, my God. I can't. I, oh, he, that is such a tease. Is this a mini series or not, Mr. Lindelof? Please tell me. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. <laughs> and this is the Watchmen podcast. <laughs> so I've got a I'm off my <laughs> I, I have a cold this week. I'm off my game. All right. Do colds make you ask questions with every statement? Just statements are questions now. They do? <laughs> Nailed it.